You're listening to the Professional Writer Podcast, episode number 73. When I was writing a book for prospective adoptive parents, I included some sidebar stories about people from the Bible who were birth parents, adoptive parents, and adopted people. And two of my good friends had recently completed theology degrees in seminary, and they reviewed the content to evaluate whether it was theologically sound. I also included interviews with birth parents. I wanted to be extra sensitive to birth parents in the parts of my book that referred to them because people are often judgmental of birth parents. They assume them to be uncaring drug addicts or criminals who abandoned their unwanted child. In reality, most of the birth parents I've encountered are anything but. They are normal, caring people who experience an unplanned pregnancy. Like any parent, they have hopes and dreams for their child. Those who choose an adoptive family to raise their child typically do so with a tremendous amount of soul-searching, thought, anguish, and love. At the time I was writing that book, I was involved in a discussion group that included birth parents, adopted people, and adoptive parents. One birth mom in that group had had a highly negative experience with adoption. The adoptive parents that she had placed her child with had made a bunch of empty promises that they didn't fulfill, and the birth mom was understandably angry, resentful, and very outspoken about the bad rap she felt birth moms were getting. Despite her anger and hurt, though, this woman was also very willing to listen to others' viewpoints, and she wanted to heal. She and I forged an online relationship. When I asked her to be a sensitivity reader for the chapters in my book that featured birth parents, she agreed. She provided blunt, honest feedback, and she also affirmed that my chapters that featured birth parents did so with sensitivity and empathy. Which brings me to the topic of today's episode, Sensitivity Readers. I'm Laura Christensen, and welcome to the Professional Writer Podcast. My goal is to help you confidently plan, launch, and grow your writing-related business ethically with integrity. You'll find the show notes for today's episode at bloggingbistro.com. After publishing my previous episode, number 72, in which Lisa Baldwin walked us through the costs of self-publishing a book, I began receiving feedback from listeners. One listener who is in the process of launching her own nonfiction self-published book told me about how she hired experts to review it for accuracy and consistency. Now, I'm going to be featuring a conversation with this author in an upcoming episode, but her comment got me to thinking... I wonder who else hires or solicits volunteer experts to review their book manuscripts or their article drafts. What are some scenarios for which experts can provide valuable input? Well, you know what happens when I start thinking and wondering. I create a podcast episode around it because I love sharing what I'm learning with you. I asked members of the Professional Writer Podcast community, that's our private Facebook group for listeners, here's exactly what I posted in that group. Prior to publishing a book or article, either nonfiction or fiction, have you hired consultants or have you enlisted friends who are experts in your topic to review the accuracy of your research, your theology, historical events, etc.? And my listeners generously responded, and so I am sharing their responses with you today. 
This is an important topic, and it's one that's often overlooked, particularly by first-time authors and by some self-published authors who assume, well, I wrote it, so it must be correct, or it's fiction, so I can make everything up and my readers won't care. <laughs> Guess what? They do care. Karen Barnett, who was my guest in episode 13, which was titled Giving Readers Exactly What They Want, is a historical romance novelist whose upcoming novel is set in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Karen had two people read through the final draft. One of them was a retired Great Smoky Mountains ranger, and the other was a blogger who specializes in regional dialect. For one of her previous novels, a Yellowstone novel titled Ever Faithful, the park historian fact-checked the book. Karen writes, I'm always worried about mistakes, so I do a lot of research for my novels. After it's written, I enlist some experts to read the final draft or pertinent sections to make sure it's as accurate as I can make it. She goes on to say, if you incorporate cultures other than your own, it's wise to have sensitivity readers who can catch anything that might be deemed offensive. And then she says, for those of us who write fiction, readers trust that our stories are grounded in some sort of truth. We have a responsibility to honor that trust. Well, let's pause here for today's word nerd moment. Karen mentioned the term sensitivity readers. And what exactly is that? A sensitivity reader is a type of beta reader or a copy editor who reviews an unpublished manuscript specifically for these things. They review them for insensitive, stereotypical, biased, inaccurate, or offensive portrayals of race, religion, sexuality, culture, ethnicity, physical disabilities, mental illness, ageism, trauma, and the list goes on. They review them for a lack of understanding of these things on the author's part. They review them for problematic language, which can slip in very easily. And they review them for the accuracy of the science or the theology or the procedures. Oftentimes, a sensitivity reader will come from the community that the author is writing about. So they have a deep personal knowledge and experience with that community. They may also have a significant amount of academic experience within that community. For example, in Karen Barnett's case, the park ranger and the park historian were both deeply entrenched in their respective communities, and they had a lot of historical academic knowledge as well. The blogger that she enlisted who specializes in regional dialect also brought a high level of specific skills to the table. When you work with a sensitivity reader or a subject matter expert, what they'll do is they will note the problems that they find in your work and they'll offer solutions for how to fix them. Now, ultimately, it's up to you or your publisher as to whether you're going to change the things that they recommend. But my thought is that if you're going to the trouble of enlisting a sensitivity reader or a subject matter expert, you'll probably want to listen to their advice and change the things that they suggest that you change. Sensitivity readers have become a thing during the past five to 10 years, as publishers have finally become more aware that not everyone wants to write or read books that feature white middle-class people. 
as we writers seek to feature people and characters with diverse backgrounds who represent a variety of cultures and ways of life that are beyond our own scope of experience, sensitivity readers can help us represent those people as thoughtfully and accurately as possible. Many traditional publishers do have freelance sensitivity readers in their stable. They may even include this in an author's publishing contract, or more likely they may encourage the author to hire one or more sensitivity readers on their own dime. While hiring sensitivity readers definitely is an option, you may also be able to find volunteers to serve as sensitivity readers, like I did when I was writing my book for Prospective Adoptive Parents. Janet McHenry, an award-winning speaker and the author of 24 books, volunteers to field questions about what it's like to be a public school teacher. She says, I read one novel where the writer made errors about the profession, and she lost credibility with me for that book. As a former public school teacher myself, and the wife, mother, aunt, and sister-in-law of numerous public school teachers, I am so grateful for people like Janet. I recall the time I was teaching at a conference, and the attendees and faculty went out to dinner together. I was sitting at a table with three other women whom I'd never met before, and one of them went on a long and vicious rant about the evils of public education and the evils of teachers in general, and you could practically see the steam shooting out of my ears. And finally, when I couldn't take it any longer, I politely but pointedly asked, when was the last time you visited a public school or volunteered at one? Oh, never, she replied. So where are you getting the information that all public school teachers are evil demons from hell? I asked. Did you know that out of the nearly three and a half million public school teachers in the United States, it's estimated that at least 30% of them are people of faith? I was getting on a roll, so I continued, and my husband's one of them, and my son, and my mother-in-law, three of my sisters-in-law, two of my brothers-in-law, several of my nieces. These people don't teach because of the astronomical salary <clears throat> or the fact that they get so much respect <clears throat> from their students and from the parents of those students and the public. And they teach because it's a calling, a passion. For many teachers, it is a mission field on which they can't openly express their faith, but they can certainly live out their faith. Hmm, I never thought about it that way, the woman admitted. I'm hopeful that the next time this woman considers spouting off about public education, she'll remember our conversation. Thank you, Janet McHenry, for offering to field questions about what it's like to be a public school teacher. I suspect that you field questions with just a little bit more grace and tact than I do. It's time for our first massive action step of the episode. If you've been listening for any length of time, you know that I avoid urging you to take passive action. In other words, I don't want you to just listen to this episode and go, huh, 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 that was really nice. I want you to take action on the things that we're learning here together. Your most valuable ability is your credibility. Let me repeat that because it's so important. Your most valuable ability is your credibility. Whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, you will lose credibility with your readers when you make errors 
or assumptions about not just the teaching profession, but about any profession. Engaging the services of someone who lives that profession to review your manuscript will help you establish and grow your credibility. If you're preparing to write a book or article and you know you'll be including information that is outside your scope of experience or expertise, create a list or a spreadsheet of people you can ask to serve as sensitivity readers or subject matter experts. It's fine, even recommended, to have more than one sensitivity reader as each person is going to contribute a unique perspective. How do we go about finding these people? You may not have to search too far to find subject matter experts and sensitivity readers. Deb Gorman is working on a novel in which one of the characters lives in the wilds of Northeast Washington State and hunts. He also runs a bed and breakfast with his wife. Deb says, when needing information on what type of weapon he might hunt with and or carry for protection, I consult my live-in expert, my husband. Deb's comment also brought another thought to my mind. It reminded me that consulting with local experts about the correct spelling and pronunciation of city and state names, rivers, lakes, mountains, indigenous peoples is also crucial. The other day I was watching a movie and the character announced, I'm from Oregon. He meant Oregon. And I replied to the television, no, you're not. Although I was born in Oregon, I have spent most of my life in Oregon's neighbor to the north, Washington State. In Washington, we have loads of challenging to spell and even more challenging to pronounce Native American words. And to add to the confusion, many of those words sound similar. There's, for example, Snohomish, Skycomish, Skokomish, Stillaguamish, Sammamish, Samish, and those are the easy ones. When you're looking for sensitivity readers and subject matter experts, start close to home, maybe even as close as the person you share your bed with. For pronunciation of challenging words, which is particularly important for those of us who are speakers and podcasters, you can almost always find YouTube videos that feature a native speaker pronouncing the word. Or you can post on social media. How do you pronounce the name of that town in Washington state that's spelled P-U-Y-A-L-L-U-P? It's Puyallup, by the way. We've talked about sensitivity readers and subject matter experts for fiction. Now let's focus on some nonfiction examples from my listeners. Wendy Props Casto is a nuclear medicine technologist who became a healthcare whistleblower when her supervisor gave orders that endangered patient lives. Whoa, <laughs> that's heavy stuff, Wendy. Here's Wendy's backstory in her words. I spoke up to my supervisor and the director of radiology, but they did not want to correct the problem, so I took my concerns to a contact in HR. The hospital retaliated and tried to drive me out. I stood my ground, so they made up false charges and fired me. It took three years to make it to trial in a wrongful termination suit, but the jury unanimously found in my favor and against the hospital on all six counts, so I'm free to tell everything. I can quote from 280 trial exhibits, mostly hospital emails and policies, and transcripts from six days at trial. Wendy is working on a memoir that is supported by reams of court and trial documents. For fact-checking, she relies on her own documentation, emails, texts, instant messages, 
digital photos, social media posts, her own medical records, and other verifiable information that is time-stamped. Let me repeat that, verifiable information that's time-stamped. And Wendy has everything organized chronologically into binders. Fact-checking is extremely important for both nonfiction and fiction writers. Michelle Yule should know, she writes both. Michelle says, the last thing you want to do is make a factual error about someone famous, whether alive or dead. As a biographer of Mrs. Oswald Chambers, the woman behind the world's best-selling devotional, Michelle says she had access and cordial relations with experts or those in ministry who knew the subject. Oswald Chambers' biographer, for example. She says that this access was very helpful and encouraging and that she corrected several errors as a result. Michelle also relies on fact checkers when she's blogging. She says, if I write about someone, I give them the opportunity to review the post before I publish. Next, let's talk about the costs of working with fact checkers and sensitivity readers. As you are budgeting for your writing-related business or you're planning your next piece, you may want to include a line item for fact-checkers and sensitivity readers. Working with these people may cost you nothing monetarily, as they're often volunteers. However, if you're writing about a sensitive topic or you're working on a piece that requires lots of research or theology or interviews or, in Wendy's case, court documents, or digging up a primary sources, you will want to budget anywhere from around $300 for starters to several thousand dollars, depending on the amount and complexity of fact checking that you anticipate needing. Now, how do we go about finding these sensitivity readers? Well, here are four ways that you can find them. Number one, start close to home. Ask friends who they'd recommend to be a sensitivity reader or a fact checker. Number two, join organizations and online groups that revolve around the topic that you're researching. Ask questions of the other group members. I'm in several topical-based discussion groups, and people are so generous with sharing what they know. Number three, if you're contracted with a traditional publisher, ask them for recommendations. And number four, search for sensitivity readers, that exact phrase, quote, sensitivity readers, unquote, online. There are several directories and databases from which you can request or hire a freelance copy editor who specializes in the topic you're researching. I searched one directory and here are just a few of the specialties that I found listed. Interracial marriage, degenerative joint disease, social anxiety, biracial, and that person mentioned black and white was their type of biracial that they specialized in, Muslim, post-traumatic stress disorder, weight loss surgery, transgender, blindness, South Asian immigrant, medical literature, family trauma, workplace discrimination, autism spectrum disorder, we already talked about one of the costs of not working with fact checkers and sensitivity readers, that is damage to your credibility. I encourage you to reach out to experts. Don't stop yourself from contacting them with the excuse that they're too famous or too busy or I'm a nobody, they'd never want to talk with me. 
You'd be surprised at just how available and eager to help many experts are. Michelle Yule offers a wise reminder for us. She says that none of us want our subject misinterpreted or misrepresented. As such, experts in the field are usually happy to accommodate us. Today's episode on sensitivity readers is part four in my series on investments for your writing business. If you'd like to go back and listen to the first three episodes in this series, here's a quick recap of what you'll get. Part one, episode 70, is titled Five Quick, Easy, and Free Ways to Gain Visibility as a Writer. And in this episode, I talk about five basic things that you can do right now to find great deals on writerly tools, to interact with prospective readers and book buyers, and to earn some bonus income. And I've included a shareable infographic in episode number 70. Episode 71 is part two in the series, and this one is titled, Things I Spend Money On to Run My Writing Business. For me, running a writing-related business costs several thousand dollars per year, and I am a frugal do-it-yourselfer. In episode 71, I tell you exactly what I spend, how much to budget for essentials, and three things to do before investing in a service or a tool. That episode includes a transcript and loads of links that you can click to explore further. The third part of the series is episode 72, and the title of that one is Costs of Self-Publishing a Book. And in that episode, I bring on guest Lisa Baldwin, who is a debut memoir author, and Lisa shares how several publishing professionals helped her shape her manuscript into an award-winning self-published book. We talk about Lisa's pre-publication costs, publication costs, and hidden fees. And that episode number 72 also includes loads of links and resources. I hope you enjoy all the episodes in the Investments for Your Writing Business series. We actually have several more episodes coming up, so we are not done yet. This is a big topic that I have chunkified so that you are taking all this information in in somewhat small doses. I appreciate you listening to the Professional Writer Podcast. Again, you can find the show notes over at bloggingbistro.com. I'm Laura Christensen. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk with you again next time.